Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. This is Mariana here with my co-host, Jonah. Hi, Jonah. Hey, Mariana. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I'm stoked for our episode topic today. Yeah, me too. So today's episode is pretty special. We got to talk with Eric Freifogel, and Jonah's going to tell you a little bit more about him. We wanted to have a conversation with him about land ethics. So we've we covered the North American model in a couple episodes, and as we discussed it, you know, we we posed a lot of questions about the public-private interface when it comes to conservation and land and all the challenges that are associated with that interface. And of course, how, especially how people perceive the land, um, specifically in, in the U.S., which is where we have experience. And when we use the term land ethics, we're talking mostly about basically rights and wrongs in how we use the land and even how we think about it. Yeah, so b- before we we get into our interview with him, there's some some things some background we need to go over because we're going to be talking a lot about a specific land ethic as defined by Aldo Leopold. So um and that this idea of a land ethic is generally associated with Aldo Leopold and you know I real I realize we've like dropped his name here and there in, in previous episodes, but I don't think we've ever really talked about who Leopold was. Um, so Aldo Leopold um, was a 20th century conservationist and here in the United States, he's basically considered the father of our wildlife management system as we know it today. He wrote a, a lot um, of essays that have been, you know, combined in books and things. But in particular, his most famous work is called A Sand County Almanac, which we highly recommend to everyone. You you know, it doesn't only apply to people that live in the States. Um, It's an amazing work of um, tons of essays, just, you know, not only about land ethics, but just about um, nature, quote unquote, and, um, his experiences throughout his young life um, in, you know, the Western United States. And, you know, he moved to Wisconsin. So there's just like, it's just um, a lot of really foundational principles, but also it's just a really amazing poetic work. And, you know, in almost all his essays, this underlying theme is um, the way that people use land and the way we think about land. And, you know, he advocated that it's not just an issue of economics, but also of ethics. And so he lived in a time in the United States when wildlife biology was really only just blossoming. And the field of ecology, as we think of it today, you know, is still decades away from coming to fruition. But he really understood enough about an ecosystem to see that it's all interconnected and this you know comes through in his writing and what also comes through is that he understood that as humans whatever we do it has a cascading effect um, into the land community so it's not just our immediate environment but also into the future 
And so he starts off, particularly in a Sand County Almanac, there's an essay called um, Land Ethics. And he starts off by defining what an ecological ethic is. And this is, you know, central to what we're going to be talking about with Eric today. Um, and so he, Leopold defines an eth- ecological ethic as a limitation on freedom of, a- of action in the struggle for existence. And then he goes on to note that a philosophical ethic is a differentiation of social from antisocial conduct. So, you know, he's sort of distinguishing these definitions, but they're really important and they come together when we're talking about land ethics because there is this, you know, social meaning, you know, benefiting a community from antisocial meaning, you know, I'm doing this just for myself. And that's important in the land ethic. And then he sort of, you know, summarizes that in general, ethics and a land ethic should be a mode of guidance and a sort of community instinct, which is important. And this comes through a lot in Eric Freifogel's writing over the past 30 years, that ethics are largely defined by a community, meaning, you know, the society at that point in time, which is important because that means it can evolve. And this is shown throughout history, you know, as as values have shifted in different civilizations. But still, this definition assumes that an individual is acting in a way that benefits the community, which is, you know, where a lot of issues come up when we're talking about land ethics. So although Leopold's land ethic advocated for an inclusion of non-human members of a community, so the soil, water, plants, and animals, and that's what you know, he and we collectively know as the land, quote unquote. So when we're talking about the land, it means everything, including humans, including animals, including the the abiotic stuff. And so crucially, when we're talking about land ethics, it requires that our role as humans be changed from this, you know, historical perspective as uh, conquerors of the land community and we think of ourselves as members or citizens of the land community. And that's that's going to come through in, in our interview with um, Eric because that's a central issue when we're talking about land ethics. And of course, this implies you know a respect for fellow members of that community, whether they be other people or abiotic or biotic parts of that community. And so just sort of before we get into our interview with Eric, Um, I just wanted to give this quote from one of his books called Bounded People, Boundless Land. He says that a healthy land is a land that flourishes in response to ethical human behavior, as well as functioning productively in ways that scientists can study. And I just thought that really sums up, you know, a land ethic in addition to what we just talked about, how Leopold defined it. But it also sort of gives you an idea of the perspective that Eric is coming from. So with all that said, we're super excited to have our first ever guests on the podcast. You know, this has been this has been a, a long time coming. And, you know, I think we we teased this a few episodes ago, potentially. But we really thought that, um, you know, rather than us just talking about land ethics, which we could do for, you know, five episodes, um, that it would be nice to bring in someone who their entire career has been based on looking at this issue specifically in relation to Aldo Leopold's definition of a land ethic. And so Eric, um, who is 
one of my favorite authors. Um, he's written a lot of things. We thought that having him come on the podcast would be um, more enlightening than just us talking about land ethics because this is something he's worked his entire career on. So our guest today is Eric Freifogel, and he is a research professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He's authored dozens of books and essays and journal articles on how humans interact with nature. And as a professor in the College of Law, he's dealt a lot with legal aspects of conservation, but he's also really interdisciplinary and um, uses things like history and biology and economics and literature to understand our relationship with the natural environment and to illustrate how we're actually not as separate from nature as as we tend to think we are. Um, so thanks for joining us today, Eric. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've, you've written some, a lot of books dealing with um, conservation in the United States, particularly dealing with private property. And some of them kind of have like, <laughs> I think, provocative book titles, like why conservation is failing and how it can gain ground, um, how U.S. culture undermines environmental reform, bounded people, boundless lands, envisioning a new land ethic. Um, is that kind of something that you intended for it to be provocative? Oh, sure. You know, but book publishers like provocative titles these days. Um, and so some of the titles were either either picked or encouraged by publishers. But but I have really tried to get people's attention um, uh, and, and to do so, though, for books that have a pretty heavy academic content to them. So that is, I take ideas very seriously and probe them. So uh, uh, they, they are not quite the same as the books out on the market by journalists. Um, but still, I want to let people know that it's, it's a provocative issue um, and that I intend to engage it in, a, in some, you know, a, a fresh and stimulating way. Yeah. OK, so, Eric, um, for the first uh, question we wanted to ask you, it's simple and yet not so simple, right? How do you define land ethics? Uh, sure. Land, land ethics. Um, you know, I might start with a couple quotes uh, by the great old Leopold that are, that are often used. Uh, I think Leopold defined a land ethic as a as a limitation on the freedom of action and the struggle for existence, um, and he referred to it as a, a way to differentiate between social from antisocial conduct. Um, I guess I would uh, I'm inclined to say that that we uh, as humans as a species have every right to use the natural world as we go about our daily life. Uh, other species do. There's nothing wrong with that. But we really shouldn't be abusing it. We shouldn't be degrading it. Um, and so merely to say that is to is to point a finger at the need to draw a line between the legitimate use of nature and the abuse or degradation of it. And I think that's where a land ethic comes in, that it helps us distinguish. Well, Leopold's point was, um, you know, social from antisocial conduct. I would say it, it sort of helps us figure out the difference between the legitimate use of nature and the abuse of it. Um, of course, um, you know, there's no reason for us not, as we think about that issue, to start with our own welfare. 
uh, to think about it broadly. I mean, there's, it's appropriate for us to use nature in a way that supports us. But there's a bunch of other factors that are relevant as well um, and uh, that ethics would bring into it. You know, respect for the moral value of other creatures, uh, species, uh, individual animals as such, uh, and maybe biotic communities, uh, moral respect for nature as a functioning system. That was uh, very big for all the Leopold. Uh, concern about future generations and the, and the kind of lands and waters and biotic communities we ought to be leaving for them to enjoy. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, aspects of individual virtue and character. Uh, what would it mean to be a good person living on land um, in, in virtue terms? And there's a lot of factors then that would enter into land ethics. And even just the beauty of the landscape itself, promoting the beauty has got ethical connotations to it. So I think land ethics in some way interacts with all of these normative concerns and ultimately would come together uh, with some sense, maybe clear, maybe not so clear, of how we distinguish between the legitimate use of nature and the abuse of it. So do you think that there is one land ethic that we should strive to promote, like the land ethic that Leopold talked about? Uh, well, um, I think so. Um, of course, the land ethic that I would come together with is is uh, one that reflects my own preferences, my own value choices. Uh, I don't know that I'd expect anybody else to agree with it completely, but but I think that that some ethics are much more sound than others. Um, and, uh, you know, I would encourage other people not just to grab onto something, but but really to to engage the issue seriously um, and dig as deeply as they can. Certainly, my own ethic is grounded in Leopold's thought. I would start with that. Um, you know, all the Leopold's land ethic is much quoted. I think it is not as under well understood as um, uh, as it ought to be. If you look at Leopold's writing, his his land ethic did have a very clear content to it. Um, it was centered around this normative vision of a healthy land, land health, as he called it. The, the ethic in his in his thinking was essentially a way of translating this normative vision of healthy land into an individual responsibility. Um, and he says that uh, in his essay, The Land Ethic. Um, I think toward the end, he says something like it's the, the point of a land ethic is to is to um, impose upon the individual, particularly the landowner, an obligation to use the land in a way that sustains its health. Um, I have over time added to that in my own thinking. Um, there are some pieces that I think are usefully added onto this normative base that Leopold came up with. And his normative base uh, is sometimes phrased, uh, you know, people often quote that, that one sentence about promoting the integrity, stability, and beauty uh, of the land community. Um, and that is a shorthand way of getting at his notion of land health. Uh, whenever I quote that or hear it quoted, I always encourage people to realize that when Leopold used those words, integrity, stability, and beauty, he had very particular definitions in mind for them, and they are not the definitions that people give to the words today. So if you're out to figure out what Leopold meant, you need to back up, dig into his writings, and figure out what he meant by that. Uh, on, on that point, I would say the best uh, secondary source to turn to, I think, is Julian Newton, Julian Warren's um, book, Aldo Leopold's Odyssey, that does a fabulously good job tracing his ecological thought, tracing his social thought, and then toward the end really gives a very clear definition uh, to those words that's based upon Leopold's writings. So um, it's very much a functionalist uh, ethic. 
That is, it looks to the functioning of the land as a community. It, it is not chiefly a, a compositionalist one. If you're familiar with that distinction, a compositionalist ethic would be one that really is mostly out to promote the biological diversity or integrity uh, of landscapes. Um, so I would there's several things that I would add to that. Um, we, we have, for starters, learned more about land functioning uh, than you know Leopold knew in his day. And so there's an updating to the science that can be done here. Um, Leopold talked a lot about the biotic right of other species and life forms to exist, but those uh, writings of his really were not part of this land health uh, norm that he came up with. And I think they somehow need to be merged into it. That even adds sort of a compositionalist element to this um, uh, to what is basically a functionalist normative standard. There's a lot to be added also in the area of social justice, uh, which Leopold sort of passed over. He wasn't unaware of it, um, but he didn't really frame an ethic that took that into account. I mean, we now are very much aware how the use of nature by some people in some places affects other people um, and how resources are fairly scarce. And uh, those people who hoard resources and use it to the exclusion of other people uh, are engaging, I think, in the misuse of nature. So I would add social components to this land ethic. Uh, I would be inclined also to more overtly add a recognition of the limits on our knowledge about nature uh, and our ability to control it. Leopold, again, wrote about that. He was very much aware of it. So, But I think those ideas somehow can be brought into his land ethic a little more clearly than he did. Um, so there's various things that that I think might be added. The, the reference to limits on our knowledge, the wisdom of acting with caution, of course, sort of brings in some virtue-based elements into this ethic, which which I think is good. Um, so I sort of uh, you know br bring it all together, and uh, and it makes sense to me. On I think it's really interesting you were talking about um, recognition on our limits to knowledge, and I also think that that's this especially important for our conversation with, I don't want to say lay people, but people who aren't scientists, I, su I suppose, or not conservationists, um, the, the stakeholders. And I think it's important to for our dialogue with them to recognize our, our limits to knowledge, but I'm also afraid of them using that against us um, in a way where... They can use our limits about knowledge of nature to argue against some of our principles for conservation, kind of the way, um, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> sure. I, I, I can add, comment on that right, right sure. now. Um, you, you, but your concern is very well placed. Uh, and it's well placed because one of the cardinal uh, freedoms in America is this notion that, that we ought to be able to use nature as we see fit, as long as we are not causing overt harm, uh, maybe to neighbors, po possibly to other life forms. But, but people sort of want freedom of action, uh, and they don't want to face limits to that action unless it's really proven um, that what they're doing is harmful. Uh, and so if the evidence just isn't there, if we're worried about the harm but can't really prove it, uh, a normal American reaction would be just to say, I'm going to charge ahead. Uh, you know, it's up to you to prove that what I'm doing is bad until you have done so. Uh, I ought to be able to keep going. Uh, and that is a huge problem because, um, in fairness, we have to recognize that there's a great deal we don't know. 
Um, one, uh, you know, the response that I would have to that is that that uh, ought to encourage us to act with caution. You know, we, we shouldn't be gambling in ways, you know, to, we shouldn't be placing bets that we can't afford to lose. Uh, as Wendell Berry says, we should always be lo- lo- leaving room for second chances uh, to correct the inevitable mistakes that we're going to be making. But that uh, really isn't consistent with uh, America's commitment to individual liberty, particularly as it's embodied in the institution of private property. Yeah, we kind of um, we recently did a couple episodes on the North American model of wildlife conservation, and oh, we actually talked about that a lot. Where particularly concerning our our gaps in knowledge, where the way historically and currently a lot of times we deal with things is it's just sustainable until proven otherwise, and I yeah, it's just a, a dangerous um, line to walk. And you mentioned, Eric, you, just the the tendency for Americans to be very invested in their individuality. And we wonder if, if your views or how your views on land ethic and private property may have changed over the decades that you've been invested in this issue, if they've changed um, on these topics. Oh, goodness, yes. You know, so I've been at this, uh, what, 30, 35 years, um, probing both of them, you know, thinking about our place in nature generally, um, and also uh, trying to make sense of this institution of private property. Uh, My thinking about private property has mostly focused upon property rights in nature, in land and water flows and trees and so on. I have been far less concerned about um, ownership rights and intellectual property, you know, patents, trademarks and the like, or computer software programs or, you know, financial assets or even corporations. It really is about the ownership of nature because I think there's something different about nature. Well, there's a lot of things different about it. I mean, for one thing, it, the the owner didn't create it. It's not something you've created, so you don't have some special property claim to it by virtue of having created it. Um, uh, and of course, all parts of nature are ecologically interconnected, um, so you can't really claim part of nature and use it with any intensity without having ripple effects that spread onto other people, you know, far, far and wide. So yeah, my thinking about both ethics and property have changed rather considerably over time. Um, you know, I, uh, when, when you started off introducing me, you mentioned some of the disciplines that I draw upon. I don't know that you specifically mentioned philosophy, but I've been an avid reader of environmental philosophy, uh, not just by academics, but by outsiders uh, all along. You know, I, and and uh, and there was a lot of struggles there because I tend to read, uh, you know, slowly and carefully, and I and I take seriously the views of different people. Um, so I was I was in my own development. I was distracted for quite a while by the by this clash between moral monism and moral pluralism, uh, particularly since I think very highly of the writings of Bear Callicott, and he's um, you know an early essay that I read came out pretty strongly against moral pluralism, which I was sort of attracted to. So that made me pause. Uh, I was thrown off for a while also by the various philosophers who rejected the idea that we could owe duties to future generations, because again, it, my sense was that that could be a fertile place to, to sort of to build upon uh, a sound uh, environmental ethic. And I was very drawn to the writings of Brian Norton, who of course made very heavy use of future generations. So I had to sort of come to terms with, with that issue 
um, I was distracted also by the resistance among philosophers to um, to recognizing moral value in species as such and the biotic communities. You know, there's been a lot of uh, long-standing claims that really moral value can only attach to an individual living thing. Um, and then there were the social justice aspects that I've added on. So my my thinking about um, land ethics has has uh, moved along considerably over time. Um, I filled in a lot of missing pieces in the course of working on a book of mine that came out in 2017, uh, put out by the University of Chicago Press, a book called Our Oldest Task. Uh, the title, I should add, came, comes from a quote by Aldo Leopold. Um, he referred to our the oldest task in human history is to live on land without degrading it. Um, and that's been the challenge for humans all along, is to find ways to live on land that didn't degrade the land community of which they were a part. The subtitle of that was Making Sense of Our Place in Nature. And I did something that I don't suppose any academic philosopher would be <laughs> daring to do, um, uh, and that is really take on the subject as a whole, uh, try to figure out seriously how we fit into nature, um, starting with the basics of what is there in the natural world and the metaphysics and ontology, going on to epistemology. How is it that we actually learn things about the natural world? I ended up spending a lot of time trying to dig into the sources of normativity, um, and I was surprised at the difficulty I had finding good writing on the topic. That is, where is it that where does objective moral norms come from, and, and what might give them a binding force in society? And then on from there. Uh, to sort of gradually put together uh, all of the pieces of a land ethic, uh, including some of the pieces I hadn't really thought about or written about much. So, um, yeah, so I would say my thinking that, you know, grabbed on to Leopold in the late 80s took a good 30 years um, to come for, to fruition. My, the same story I could tell about private property. Um, although there my, my ideas sort of solidified a little more quickly. You know, it took me a while really to understand that private property is very much a social construction uh, by societies. When you say that a country has private property, that doesn't really mean anything unless you understand the ownership norms and laws that exist in terms of what can be owned and what it means to own and the rights and responsibilities of ownership. They vary so much among cultures. They vary over time and they varied considerably um, just here in the United States. Um, so I had to come up with the social construction sign to realize its moral complexity as well. You know, private property um, has been over time, still is today in many places in the world. And even in the United States, I would say it, it's been a legal arrangement that allows some people to dominate and exploit the lives of others. I mean, if, if there's people who need land to grow food on to live and you control the land and they can only use it uh, with your permission, that gives you an awful lot of power over them. And so that that raises real moral issues about um, private ownership that I think have to be grounded in some way. And so that, again, leads back into philosophy. Uh, John Locke's labor theory is pretty frivolous. and uh, doesn't get you very far when it comes to nature. Uh, as he frankly admitted, if, for, if you read carefully his writings. And, and so inevitably, you have to find some other basis, a consequentialist basis, I think, for coming up with some justification. So it's anyway, my, my thinking about property went on and it, that sort of came together, oh, 10 years ago or so, mostly in a, a couple books that came out, one called The Land We Share, another one um, called On on Private Property. Um but even then, my thinking continued. I had occasion to spend a, a semester at the Center for Advanced Study in South Africa, 
uh, and while there, um, you know, was stark, starkly uh, aware of the connection between control over nature, over land, and exploitation of people. Uh, and I had occasion to write uh, a fairly comprehensive, lengthy essay about the links between private property and human flourishing. So uh, even even as recently as then, I was adding pieces to my understanding. Do you think if you hadn't, do you think if you weren't so well traveled, you wouldn't have as great a perspective on social systems and our participation in them and how private property works around the globe? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know about the well traveled part, but um, whether that part, whether you have to physically go places, but it certainly is good to to um, cast your net widely to look at uh, ownership systems in different places. And, and I continue to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by various uh, ownership systems and in, in, in more tribal cultures and more uh, communal based cultures. Um, and I, fortunately, I've had some good research assistants, the one that I can think of right offhand from Zimbabwe. Uh, we had wonderful discussions about about customary um, property arrangements um, in that country. And also while I was in South Africa learning about that. But but really, just looking back in, in history, in Anglo-American history, um, there are a lot of surprises um, about uh, different understandings of property, different legal arrangements. I mean, one, one of them that I often mention to people because they find it astonishing is that in early America, colonial America, well into the 19th century to the late 19th century in places, landowners really did not have anything like a full right to exclude people from their lands. Um, that is, private lands were open to the use by the public for hunting, for foraging, for grazing livestock, um, unless you went to the very considerable expense of fencing your land, um, uh, difficult to do in the days before barbed wire, and there wasn't that much land that was fenced. And, um, and that really was one of the freedoms that Americans thought they held. You know, back in England, for instance, you had to own land if you were going to be able to hunt. Not so in the free country of America. Gosh, you could just roam almost anywhere uh, and freely hunt um, uh, as one of your rights of American citizen. Now, that law changed over time, of course. Landowners gained increasingly greater powers to control access. But it's one of the many elements of land ownership that was up for discussion and renegotiation and alteration. And so, um, you know, when you see that, when you see how much change exists over time and space, you really realize that private property is quite a flexible institution. Um, you add to that its moral complexity, the fact that if it's not properly structured, it can really allow some people to uh, exploit and dominate the lives of others. So, I mean, another, another point just to hit is a lot of times people will think that private property is sort of a private power of some sort. Uh, and all owners want is for government to leave them alone. Uh, but of course, that isn't true. Uh, the moment somebody trespasses on your land, you want to call in the police. Uh, you want to you know, have the courts. I mean, you're, you're calling in state power. So what you really want is the state to be at your beck and call to come protect you. And, and you know, when, it, when a trespasser is arrested and thrown in prison, I mean, that's a massive interference with the individual liberty. And it's state power that is doing that. It is state power being used to restrict the liberty of other people. Um, and that's uh, highly morally problematic uh, unless you can come up with a justification. And it's not enough simply to say, oh, well, I have my property rights. I want them protected because it's the property rights themselves that are at, at issue morally. What makes them legitimate? Um, and in many places around the world, they're not legitimate. 
Um, and I think there's reason to question some of the property rights in the United States as well. A lot of water rights, I won't get off onto that, but if you just think about the astronomical prices that landowners charge tenants to rent property in big cities, um, and if you then dig a little deeper and say, well, wh why is the property so expensive? Uh, well, it's not because anything that landowner has done, um, uh, you know, the property rises in value because of activities of the surrounding community. So this is, this is land value created by the community. Shouldn't the community have some claim to that increase in land value? Anyway, it goes on and on. I mean, I think private property is just a fascinating subject. Uh, and I have uh, always encouraged people to, to you know, sh share my enthusiasm and interest in studying it. Um, it is not simply something that a society takes off the shelf and says, yes, we'll have private property. I never really thought much about like the details that you, you're you're talking about and that you wrote about private property until um, you know I've been reading your one book Wildlife Law for one of my classes and I live in Texas and so I, it's been kind of interesting for me living in Texas and dealing with the private property stuff here and then you know all of a sudden starting to think more broadly about private property because. I mean, I just feel like Texas more than any other place is so uh, set in their ways of private property, if you know what I mean. <laughs> sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I can add to that. You, you mentioned wildlife. Uh, it's important to know that, that um, throughout the United States, wildlife is considered the, the property of the people collectively. Uh, the wildlife that's located on private land isn't owned by the landowner. This is public property. Um, and it's managed by the state uh, as a trustee or sovereign owner with express obligations to conserve it on behalf of all of the people. Uh, the same can be said about water flows, by the way, often overlooked, that if you look dig down into state low water in the rivers and the lakes is actually owned by the people collectively. What individual water users have are specific use rights, but they're often fairly narrowly tailored with obligations to use the water in the way that's considered socially beneficial and, uh, and reasonable. Um, navigable waterways, the public has rights to use the surface of navigable waterways for a variety of purposes, for travel, for fishing and the like. So there are a lot of parts of nature that are actually public property, and, and we forget that sometimes. Um, but with respect to private property, sure. I mean, there are longstanding principles in property law that owners shouldn't use what they own in a way that causes harm either to neighboring landowners or to the community. Um, the idea of harm, of course, isn't self-defining. It needs to be given meaning by a, by a particular culture, by a particular people in a, in a given place. Um, but that, that's one of the elements of, of uh, property law that can be seized upon to try to, to make property law um, more responsive to our environmental concerns. And there's other elements as well. Um, that is long-standing principles of property law that if we if we take those principles and and apply them to our current uh, ecological situation, um, it's easy to to come up with arguments that landowners ought to be held to fairly high standards for for using their land in ways consistent with uh, well with Aldo Leopold's notion of ecological health, the land health. Um, we we can expect a lot more of landowners than we currently demand of them. 
But I think a lot of it is um, is just that Americans don't take the time to think critically about private property. The moment somebody says, oh, this is mine, they immediately assume, oh, well, then you can sort of do with it what you want, uh, which isn't true. It's never been true. It need not be true. Um, but uh, as long as that's a response, it's hard to get much traction and get really a discussion going about what it ought to mean parts of nature today in 2019, you know, with climate change upon us. So would you say that in American, modern American culture, like land ethics and private property norms are actually treated mutually exclusive when they shouldn't be? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, uh, I, I think people would say they overlap, but they would overlap in this way. That is, our private property system allocates rights to land, um, to particular owners. Uh, and the owners largely are able to use the lands as they see fit, so long as they are not causing obvious overt harm to neighbors. Um, uh, the individual owners then, given their managerial discretion, um, can themselves develop uh, and act upon a land ethic, and they're encouraged to do so. So land ethics in modern America really is something for the individual landowner to settle upon and implement. Um, uh, and so at that level, land ethics and private property uh, fit together. Where they don't fit together um, is with the idea of a land ethic that's embraced at the community level. Should a, a lawmaking community be able to embrace a land ethic and then revise the norms of ownership so that individual landowners are expected, you know, for the most part, uh, to act consistent with this communally set land ethic. That rubs against the idea of private property as being an enclave of individual freedom that has such deep roots in our culture. It would be legally possible to do it. I mean, private property as a legal arrangement has a great deal of flexibility. And our state governments, and, and most, most property law is, uh, of course, set at the state level, state governments easily have the power to implement a land ethic by, by limiting what landowners can do. Um, but private property isn't just a legal institution. It really is part and parcel of our culture, our sense of what America is all about, what distinguishes us from other countries. And the cultural it, the culture itself, I think, is, is more resistant to change. Um, it's very hard for people to, 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 it's very hard to get people to think more critically about private property and to imagine ways of reconfiguring rights to, so that we expect people to be embracing a land ethic instead of just leaving it to their individual choice. I think those people who go out promoting a land ethic uh, are speaking to individual landowners. Certainly Aldo Leopold was. I mean, if you read his book, A Sand County Almanac, you need to realize that the primary audience for that book was individual landowners. And he was hoping that, that he would get them to see the land in new ways uh, and to come up with a land ethic that, that was more consistent with ideas of land, land health. He sort of mused out loud in some of his writings about the possibility of land use regulation imposed at a broader scale that would force landowners to act better. But he always came to the conclusion that society wasn't ready for it. He wasn't opposed to it himself, but he said, we're not ready for it. There's a lot of cultural change has to take place before that's going to be possible. What I love about Leopold's, I guess, the accessibility of his writing, especially with um, 
essays like what you find in the St. County Almanac. What I love about the way he speaks, the way he writes, is that connection, as you mentioned, with uh, with society and with culture, especially. And I, I've said this a million times, and it's a bit of a bold statement, but I don't believe that facts are going to save the world. I believe that what we really need to focus on right now are the social systems and how we can reconcile cultural beliefs and cultural systems with conservation values. And there are ways we can do that. And I think that's that that speaks to people more than, you know, showing up on their property, knocking on their door and throwing a lot of facts at them. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I agree with you there. Um, you know, fa- facts are just facts until they're put into an interpretive or normative framework. Um, you know, the facts don't speak for themselves, you know, contrary to the, the common statement. Um, you have to put them into a framework. Uh, and it's the framework that we've had trouble with. Um, but I, I share your, your belief that if you really want to get to the heart of our environmental predicament, you have to be looking at our culture. Um, it's easy it's easy to sort of look at what's going on in the land and, and to spot practices that are not good. Uh, it's easy, that is, to identify the things that we are doing wrong. Uh, it's harder to figure out why we are doing them wrong. Uh, and indeed, I think that there aren't that many environmentalists or conservation groups or environmental researchers who really are stopping to ask that question seriously. They know what we're doing wrong. They may have an idea of how they think things should be done better, but they don't really ask themselves, well, why are we interacting with nature the way we are doing it? Um, what is it that's, what are the factors or forces that are leading us to use nature the way we do. Some of those are technology-based. You know, we, we didn't uh, you know, have to worry about DDT until somebody invented it. A lot of people will point their fingers at population. Oh, we have so many people, and there's no doubt population is part of it. But I would say an awful lot of the, the, the motivation for our uses of nature uh, arise out of our culture. Uh, the way we see nature, the way we evaluate, the way we fragment it. I mean, a key part of our culture is our tendency to fragment nature into pieces, to treat the various parts as commodities, to value those parts of nature in the market. Uh, Some parts of nature will be valuable by that measure. Many parts of nature will be valueless. We can just throw them away and forget about them. Nature's interconnections and lines of interdependency have no independent value. Big parts of nature as such, the Mississippi River has no value as such because nobody can buy it and sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in fact, some, some of the historians, I mean, Ted Steinberg, um, a, a leading environmental historian, his survey of American environmental history put that issue front and center. He said, the thing that best explains our interactions with nature for good and ill is our commodification of nature. Uh, Bill Cronin, in his great book from 1983, uh, Changes in the Land, also hit that hard. You know, the colonists who came in from Europe, they turned nature into a market. Um, you know, it's, it's and buying and selling pieces and bits and parts of it um, uh, and doing so with that market mentality, which is very short term, which is very focused on the benefits the individual owner gets, uh, not concerned about the parts of nature that have no value, not really concerned about nature as a functioning system and so on and so forth. Um, there's a lot of parts of our of our culture that are at stake. You know, a, a fabulous uh, 
document probing that uh, is uh, you know the uh, encyclical Laudato Si by Pope Francis, um, which if uh, you know I would highly recommend it to all. Um, I don't really know uh, where Pope Francis got all of his knowledge of this subject or whether he was helped in writing it by other people, but it really shows an enormous level, an enormously high level of sophistication in thinking about nature and culture and understanding of the cultural roots of our misuses of nature and so on. Uh, very much in line with the thinking of Aldo Leopold, overlapping considerably with the writings of Wendell Berry and with David Orr at, uh, at Oberlin. Um, it really is a very fine probing of our cultural predicament. Uh, so I, I share your belief that uh, if we're going to deal with our environmental problems, we've got to be making changes to our culture. In fact, I would say that without substantial culture change, there really is no hope for us to, to work our way to anything like uh, Leopold's land ethic. Um, so sort of going back to, to private property rights and responsibility, can you talk about how the responsibility of private landowners go hand in hand with land ethics? Um, sure. Or should, um, rather. Uh, right, right. That, that, that's a good question. Um, um, it, it is certainly the case that um, state lawmakers, I'll focus at the state level, um, because that's really where our main ideas of ownership are embedded in the law, uh, even though land use regulation is typically done at the local level. Local governments, of course, really are just adjuncts. They're sort of components of the state government, and they, they do things uh, only with power delegated to them by the state. Um, land use regulation, just the way we define land in law, um, uh, is highly variable. You know, lawmakers can change it over time. They can elevate the expectations that are put upon landowners. Um, you know, they, they could put in restrictions on farming, for example, that you, you can't till uh, hillsides with slope. You have to leave a certain amount of your uh, land in permanent cover. Um, uh, you know, you, you can't be draining your waterways, draining your wetlands. You have to leave room for wildlife habitat. I mean, there's a lot of things that could be put in place by lawmakers. Um, I think uh, I agree, though, with Aldo Leopold when he said, ultimately, though, to use the land well, uh, you can't just be looking at a law book. Laws really can't be tailoring the rules uh, with enough detail to provide guidance to each landowner because every land parcel is different. Uh, a lot of the things that, uh, that a, a sensible landowner would do, an ethically guided landowner would do, is not just leave things in, leave things alone on the land, but take positive steps to do planting, uh, repairing, restoring uh, land. And that really is hard to, to mandate through the law. So Leopold knew, and I think he's right, that there's no substitute for landowners who have an ethical attitude toward the land. At the same time, though, emphasizing that there's an awful lot of bad practices that the law could easily um, be prohibiting and ought to be prohibiting, I think. You know, the, the, best, um, the best exploration in Leopold's writing on this subject, I think, is his fabulous essay, The Farmer as a Conservationist. Because uh, he gets at this issue by going inside the mind of this imaginary farmer who has fully embraced the land ethic. It's sort of a, he's looking ahead into the future. Imagine we've got this farmer who is who's made all of the changes that, that Leopold thinks ought to be made. How would this person be looking at the land? How would he be thinking about it, valuing it? Uh, how would he be using it? 
Uh, I mean, it really is a just a wonderful um, uh, in, inquiry into uh, into the, the mind of, of the model landowner in Leopold's um, Leopold's uh, sort of orientation. So I think that the law certainly the law can help. Legal change can help. We can ban a lot of bad practices. Um, we can discourage others. Um, but ultimately, there's no substitute for landowners taking a sensitive I- interest in promoting the health of their land and its biological diversity and stepping up voluntarily uh, to do things to make their land healthier and more beautiful. I think Otto Leopold's imagination, I also agree, it was one of his strengths. And I wonder... I wonder if, you know, what we call this so-called na- uh, nature deficit disorder, I wonder if people who suffer from a nature deficit also suffer from a want of imagination and how that might affect, I, I suppose, culture, not not just culture, but also if it would affect the cultural change that we need to establish in our country to become better uh, land stewards. Sure. You know, I wonder about that also, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, uh, I I certainly don't think it's the case that if you just get people outdoors in nature, that they're going to be better users of nature. Um, There's just too much evidence of the contrary. Um, You see it in landscapes around here where, you know, you've got uh, people who are out there every day farming the land, but farming in a way that's very degrading, leaving no room for wildlife, spraying all sorts of chemicals, having, you know, fertilizer and uh, pesticide runoff onto the rivers. Um, I mean, really using land in uh, in ways that degrade its health in ecological terms. And, and they are, you know, outdoors a lot. Um, uh, and then you've got people in town who hardly go out at all who are very supportive uh, of land ethics. Um, so it's, it's not just a, a, a simple correlation. If you spend a lot of time outdoors, then suddenly you're going to have a better land ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, but there surely must be some connection. Uh, I mean, I've often thought about that and, and asked people, you know, where, where do you think you got your love of nature? And people will almost always say, well, it was outdoor experiences. Yeah. Um, um, that was certainly what I would cite. I mean, I didn't think about it at the time, but, you know, in scouting, I was, a, you know, uh, you know, a um, counselor at a National Boy Scout camp. Um, I had, you know, lots of outdoor experiences um, that continue to this day. I mean, I'm a regular visitor up to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in Minnesota. Um, they had a, form, a formative uh, effect on me and I think other people as well. But it's, as I say, it's what, what, what kind of outdoor experiences might stimulate that interest? Um, I don't know. Of course, it has to fit together with other parts of the cultural world view that you're putting together. Um, and if you've got sort of other aspects of the world around you that are sending messages, you know, humans dominate nature. There's nothing wrong with exploiting nature to make money. Um, it's a competitive world. Uh, you know, the free market is the best way to guide our economic activities. If you're going to be a free market winner and not a loser, you've got to get out there and you know, produced to the maximum ability and so on. I mean, those are all different messages that uh, that are that really clash with a sound land ethic. I think I think your ambivalence on the correlation, like your your lack of surety on it, has merit. Um, when I think about my own my own childhood, I 
did not, in fact, spend a lot of time in nature. And gosh, I, I suppose I've never really thought about this that much, but I... I, my love of nature grew actually from fiction, reading fictional tales about animals, anthropomorphized animals, yes, but um, about animals. And so I, I came to love wildlife through that. But I think, I think there's some merit in wondering whether um, yet yeah, being outside in nature necessarily correlates to, to valuing it. And I, and I think you're right that con- context definitely plays a part as well. Sure. I mean, getting back to Aldo Leopold, you know, he uh, also had ambivalence about this, uh, about whether outdoor education, environmental education really would be helpful, uh, whether it would be enough. He said education, sure, but what is the content of the education? Um, And I would say the same thing, that uh, what passes for environmental education today often is just nature study. You know, let's go out and identify some grasses and trees and, you know, amphibians and this and that. Uh, which is perfectly fine. Um, But if the main deficiency in our culture is that we fail to see the land as a community of life, that we fail to appreciate the interconnections and interdependencies, um, that needs to be part of the education, that we need to be helping people see the land as a community, something that includes humans. It's, you know, as Leopold said, it's the rocks and soils and waters, plants and animals and humans all mixed together into a community. Uh, we need to see the ecological functioning uh, that is so vital to um, uh, to the long-term health of the land. So it's not just studying parts of nature. Uh, there's got to be a lot more. Uh, it's about appreciating the long-term change in nature, uh, appreciating its beauty. I mean, the, the best example here, again, is Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. If you, if you sort of sit down and read it, if you realize that it's a subversive book, uh, meaning it is out to change you, the reader, in the way you see nature and uh, appreciate it. It's interesting to go through essay by essay and to ask, what is he trying to change in me with this essay? And, you know, the very first one, as you, you know the book well, is a little essay called January Thaw. And it's, it's a great place to start because snow is on the ground. And he, the author, is taking you, the reader, on a walk. He said, let's go out walking into nature and see what we see, um, and let's awaken to it. Um, uh, and of course, the, the sun is out. There's a little bit of uh, tinkling of the water. There's some of the snow is melting. You have just an early sense of spring. Um, and uh, of course, he's talking about nature. Uh, but what he's trying to do is get you to start seeing things that you had not seen before. Um, uh, and uh, and to engage you in it. So he's trying to enhance your perceptions uh, and also drawing parallels between human life and, and the life in nature. There's a lot of interesting parallels that he's drawing there to say that you know nature is a community. He's trying to obviously whet your appetite to get you involved in nature study. Leopold did a lot of writing about outdoor education, uh, the various types of it, environmental education. And he said really the highest form of environmental outdoor education is nature study itself. And he really is hoping that you will get, you the reader will get interested enough in nature that you'll want to go out and do what he does all the time, which is study it uh, and learn more about its mysteries and just be intrigued by them. I think one of the, I think sort of like a a route for many issues that I see um, in 
American culture right now is, you know, we use this word nature, quote unquote, and when we use it, we're always talking about it like it's something separate. And that's how we treat it a lot of times. And we treat it like we're not part of that community. And so what are your ideas on how we get people to realize that we're part of that community? We're not separate from it. Oh, goodness. I, I wish there was an easy answer there, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you put your finger on one one aspect of our culture that is the most damaging is our belief that sort of we are a different form of life. Um, you know, one of the conceits uh, in our culture is that we humans have moral value um, uh, and nothing else does. We're the sub, we're the moral subject. Uh, the world around us is the object. Um, it is quite a conceit to think that of all the millions of species, only one of them has moral value. Um, and of course, we have moral value for no reason other than that we say we do. It's you know what lawyers would call ipsy dixit reasoning. It's it's so because I say it is so. Uh, that's about the origin of our moral value, um, uh, and it's very troubling. Um, we sort of put ourselves above nature. It, nature just happens to be where we live. It's the warehouse we turn to to draw resources for our sustenance. Uh, we don't think of it as a community. You know, although Leopold, late, late in his life, I mean, I don't mean to keep just going back to Leopold, but he's a handy source here for, for these topics. But Leopold, late in life, gave a lot of conservation talks to various audiences. Uh, popular audiences, you know, they were farm groups or garden clubs or various, you know, P P school PTAs and so on. And fortunately, he left a lot of notes and note cards and summaries of those talks. Some of the talks he wrote up completely. I, I had occasion to go through the archives and to look through all of those talks, many, many dozens of them in his final years. Uh, and I did so with the thought of trying to identify the main points that he was making to these audiences. He knew that he had to keep things simple. He couldn't make them too numerous and come. He had to just hit a few main points. But I realized, too, that he, what he was trying to do was hit the main cultural elements that needed changing. Because um, Leopold knew, uh, you know, as, as you have said a moment ago, that it's not just giving people facts about the natural world. You have to give them a different frame, a different cultural orientation toward nature. And when Leopold gave his various talks, he hit the same points over and over again. The point number one he hit was always the land is a community of rocks and waters and soils and plants and animals and people. We are all part of it, integrated into a single community. The land is a community. Um, and that gets to the point you just mentioned. The second thing he said over and over, this community can be more or less healthy in terms of its ecological functioning over time. Um, and then point three was the health of this community ought to be our overall conservation goal. We ought to be living in ways uh, that are that sustain the health uh, of this community. And conservation for Leopold, by the way, didn't mean the more narrow sense that we have today, but he included forestry and agronomy and any you know, fisheries and anybody who is in the business of sort of overseeing uses of nature was in the conservation world. So conservation was about protecting the health of this land. He would then, by the way, go on in his talks uh, to confess to people um, that uh, getting to that goal of land health was, was not going to be easy, that it really was going to require a major shift in our culture. Uh, and he said that sort of by way of warning, I think. And, um, and he did so with, with a lot of regret. 
I mean, there are people who read his writings and think, oh, the land ethic, what a great achievement. He must have been proud in coming up with this. Uh, I am among those who think that Leopold actually was very depressed when he got to that point because he had spent years hoping to find simpler techniques to get landowners in particular to use their lands better, to behave better in nature. He thought, oh, surely some combination of regulation or economic incentives or product labeling uh, and so on, um, a community-based conservation, some combination of these things would get people to use their land better. And he tried them all out. Not one of them worked very well. Um, and ultimately, he sort of throws up his hands and just says, listen, I don't know how we're going to live well in land, how we're going to succeed at the oldest task in nature of living on land without degrading it, unless we literally become better people. We literally have to change who we are, change our culture. Uh, and once he got to that point, he realized that his job as a writer was to promote that needed cultural change. Uh, and I think he despaired in saying that. He was hoping the answer would be easier. Because he knew that the kind of culture change he had in mind was not going to come quickly. Uh, it was going to be a very, very long-term proposition. Um, and that had to be a very sobering, sobering conclusion for him to reach. I think if he, I think if Leopold were around today, I I hope, well, you know, his his hopes of possibly being able to marry something like economics-based ethics and environmentally informed land ethics, I think that there are many programs today that actually do that successfully, um, especially in underprivileged communities around the globe, where we create these community conservancy programs uh, in which, you know, natural resources that were being used in this, in this community, um, uh, that were being overused, you know, in, in, to the point of, you know, diminishing economic returns and people, uh, NGOs especially will go in and create basically reform or mold an, an economy for that local um, community that actually benefits not only them, but also the environment. So for example, going into a foresting community and actually creating some sort of economy for the people that involves actually um, not over not, uh, or I don't want to see, say preservation, but con more conservation toward not over exploiting the resources. Um, and I would hope that programs like that would um, give Aldo Leopold hope that such a thing is possible, at least at the community level. Sure. He, he um, wrote about that and talked about it himself, uh, what we today would call community-based conservation. Um, I mean, he he uh, paid a lot of attention to the Coon Valley effort in southwestern Wisconsin, where farmers were brought together to try to reduce their soil erosion and otherwise protect the rivers. Um, in a smaller scale, he, he promoted what he referred to as farmer sportsman setups, where he was getting farmers in town who would work together with landowners to, to, to give them money and help them take care of their land to promote wildlife habitat in return for the hunters sort of coming out and uh, having rights to hunt on the private land. I mean, these were just small examples of it, but he was very aware of this bottom up uh, method of conservation. I mean, surely yeah, the, the, the kind of projects you're talking about are promising, uh, but as I'm sure you know, they face long odds. Um, 
because it does really require that the local people have control over their resources um, and that it not be, you know, their, their, their decision not be taken over by distant governments or by big corporations. Um, and they have to have some long-term security in it. I mean, they have to themselves realize that they're going to be there for the long-term, their children and grandchildren. If you expect them to have a long-term attitude, they've got to have some long-term security in the land. Uh, and it's so hard to give people any confidence that that's going to be the case. Um, and it's also true that I think they need to be protected from economic competition in the market. I mean, that's, that's a different issue, maybe for a different day. But I think that one of the biggest um, mistakes that the United States has made in its trade policies is to treat products taken directly from the land, agricultural products broadly defined, including forestry products, to treat them as item of free trade. Because it really then drives producers around the world to cut corners. They have to cut their costs. Often it means embracing practices that are very degrading. Um, and uh, it's tough. It's tough for farmers uh, in the United States. It's tough for forestry operations all around the world. Um, it would be far better, I think, to have trade barriers on products taken from the land. Um, you know, the, the European Union, of course, deals with this by just massive subsidies to agricultural producers. You know, they have sort of free trade in products, but then farmers lose money like crazy. Um, and so they have to be supported. I mean, I remember reading once that the, uh, the, the people who produce sheep uh, in Britain and maybe it was just in Scotland, that something like 90 percent of their gross income comes from government payment. Uh, and that's closer to being true in the United States these days, by the way. Uh, I think the uh, uh, Farm Bureau um, recently predicted that this year, American farmers, 40% of their gross revenues was going to come from uh, payments from the federal government. Um, and even wow. as it is, they're hardly breaking even. Um, yeah, the, the whole agricultural system, including forestry, really is a complete mess. Um, the, free, the free trade uh, mentality has been very, very damaging. Uh, and I'm not sure what can be done about it. It's damaging in part because it makes it very difficult for local people to embrace practices that are sound ecologically uh, and that can sustain them. But it sustains them only if they can get decent prices when they go about selling their goods. And if market competition undercuts their ability to get decent prices, to make a decent living, um, to make their, their uh, land use practices economically uh, viable, um, it's just not going to work. Um, so it's I'm all in favor of I'm all in favor of them, but we need to go in with you know eyes open. Well, I think unless there's something else you wanted to address specifically, just in, in the interest of time, I think that was all really good. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. I hope you can get something out of it. Thank you so much. Well, good deal. Okay, so we wanted to say th a big thank you to Eric Freifogel for sitting down with us. I know it was a, we ended the interview a bit abruptly, but I think we did okay for our first time uh, with a guest. What do you think, Jonah? Yeah, surprisingly no technical issues. <laughs> um, our little like homegrown operation, I think we did pretty legit. Yeah, I think so too. So hopefully... Uh, our listeners, uh, we hope that you got another perspective aside from ours, though I think 
all of us were simpatico on the issue. We all had, you know, we're in great agreement about the issue and really enjoyed the the discussion. But I hope for our listeners, um, it was, I hope it was good to hear from another perspective, especially a more professional perspective on someone who's been studying this particular topic for his entire career, mostly. So, so yeah, hopefully we'll have uh, more guests in the future because we really enjoyed that experience. Yeah, and I, th- I think we should also say that, you know, because Leopold, you know, was is from the United States and, you know, that's what he wrote about and that's what we, we talked about here. Um, and, you know, we touched on community conservancies elsewhere in the world, but, you know, everything that Leopold talked about and everything that we just talked with Eric about doesn't just apply to the United States, which is why I really encourage, you know, listeners abroad to to get a Sand County Almanac by Leopold and definitely check out Eric's books. Um, because, you know, even though examples that are used or, or the things that are specifically being talked about are occurring in the United States, the principles apply, apply you know, everywhere around the world. So just in closing, to sort of wrap up some of the thoughts that you know, were discussed in this episode. You know, in Leopold's land ethic essay, he says that conservation is a state of harmony between men and land. And that's basically everything we were just talking about. And, you know, even though Leopold wrote that 80 plus years ago, it, it still applies today. And, you know, he also said that despite nearly, this is a quote, and you'd think that this was like a contemporary essay just because it fits so well in our society today. He says, um, despite nearly a century of propaganda, conservation still proceeds at a snail's pace. Progress still consists largely of letterhead pieties and convention oratory. And, you know, like I said, I think that still applies to things today. And Eric didn't really get into it in this interview, but, you know, he has a whole book on, you know, I think I mentioned the, the, the title of his, um, one book, Why Conservation is Failing and How It Can Regain Ground. And and he talks about, you know, a lot of issues in conservation. And we, and we talk a lot about issues that we see in the conservation field on this podcast. And so I think that, again, you know, this particular comment by Leopold still applies today. I think that in a lot of ways, Leopold would actually, this is just me talking, so, you know, you say what you think, Mariana, but I think he'd be disappointed in a lot of our conservation today because particularly I'm talking about in America, because we treat conservation as if it's like a process of compromise. You know, we say like, oh, well, okay, if you're going to, you know, whatever, this is just a hypothetical. If you're going to destroy this land, you know, as a company, you have to help preserve this land over here. And so it's sort of like this compromise. And when we talk about the Endangered Species Act in a a later episode, we'll see this, how this is like actually legislation, um, this kind of compromise. And this, this system of compromise just completely ignores the interconnectedness of the land that we always talk about and that Leopold talked about. And we've sort of like embellished the value of a single piece of, of green space um, that's disconnected from the whole. And I think that's one of the hearts of this issue is that we don't see the land as a whole. We use this word nature and we talk about nature and we treat all of this as if we're separate from it. And, you know, I, I just, 
I just refound this article that actually like changed my life in college when we were at Unity. And I don't know how I'd forgotten about it, but we'll, I think it's probably open access. So we'll share a link to it, but it's called Going Back to the Land in the Age of Entitlement. And it's by a guy named Guy McPherson, who used to be a professor at University of Arizona. And it's just a short, you know, two page essay about how he resigned from being a professor and went back to the land. And it's a super powerful article. And I think that it complements everything we're talking about and complements Leopold's essay so well. I'm just going to read a quote or a combination of quotes from from this article by Guy McPherson. He says, I'm a product of a culture that values economic growth and personal prestige over morality. It is relatively easy to make a moral case in favor of exploiting lands and waters myriad other species need to survive. We merely need to convince ourselves that we are not really part of nature. And that, you know, that among the other things in this essay is what really changed my way of thinking in college. And to me, you know, like we discussed an issue, this is one of the core issues of this whole land ethic thing in the modern world, because we think of ourselves as separate. And I think that going back to the issue of conservation education, you know, all this conservation education stuff doesn't do any favors regarding this this disconnect. We still, you know, talk about nature, which, you know, I, I, I often cringe at that word, even though it's just sort of semantics, but we use it as a way to distinguish other things from us as if we're separate from it. And for me, that that's, that's the crux of this issue. So we wanted to thank Eric Freifogel one more time for, you know, sitting down with us and having an awesome conversation about land ethics and for taking the time. If you, our listeners, have any questions or comments, especially about uh, the interview, the conversation we had, uh, what you think about what we covered, or if you wanted us to cover anything else about the land ethic, we could talk for hours and hours on, <laughs> on this particular issue. Um, but we were, we were really glad that Eric had a lot of substance to, to help us out with that. Um, but yes, to our listeners, we would love to hear from you. So feel free to connect us as usual. Connect with us as usual on Facebook or, and Instagram at, con at Conservation Chronicles. And of course, at our email, conservationchronicles at gmail.com. Um, there you can you know write as much as you want to us or ask us as many questions as you want. And we may even be able to do another listener email episode. Um, so you can visit our website at conservationchronicles at podbean.com where you can hear our episodes. And also please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us from. 